Thanks for listening to the Community Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Pastor Dan Strutz here. Our desire is to connect people with Christ and community. For more info or to contact us, please visit cbcmountainlake.com. This morning we, we do gather. It's, it's fun to be here on, on a, a, a day where we celebrate moms. Uh, and so, as maybe as I've tried to do, I, I've at least tried to consider what does this message have to do with mom. Um, and this text this morning is an interesting one. Uh, if you'll start opening up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to go kind of this section, that's chapter 9 through 11. We're going to look this morning at kind of part B of what we looked at last week. You remember last week we looked at Ahaz and, and his unfaithfulness, and, and this week we're going to look at God dealing with the people. But with that being said, I want to comment and, and let you inform you a little bit about myself uh, from the standpoint of something that you might not know. Um, believe it or not, on Mother's Day, it's probably good for me to confess that I was not a perfect child. I know that's hard to believe. I sometimes think it's hard to believe. Um, I wasn't a perfect child. I sometimes misbehaved. I sometimes didn't share my toys. I sometimes didn't clean up my room. And thankfully, I had a mother who loved me. And to be honest, on occasion, mom might get mad. Mom might get upset. She might get angry. But yet I know she did what she did in love. Sometimes she had to discipline. Sometimes she had to correct. But looking back again, I want to say that though she may not have been perfect in it, she loved, and that was her motive. We could say that with fathers as well. Sometimes it's not just moms, but dads who have to play that role of correcting and moving a child towards what's good, towards what's healthy, because they love. And I think in a way that's what we're going to see from God this morning is a God who deeply loves like we just sang about, but yet at the same time he also disciplines his people. He has to correct. And so as we re-enter into Isaiah this week, starting at chapter 9 and moving through chapter 11, that we know and are reminded that this book is uh, spoken from the lips of Isaiah, the prophet, He's the one that's speaking to God's people. He's not just trying to tell something about the future, but he's trying to tell the people God's word for them and inform them and enlighten them so they can respond correctly and know who God is. He's speaking on on behalf of God. And so this morning what we're going to see is, is a God who wants to turn his people and move them towards him, but they won't listen. So, we have a message titled, The Outstretched Hand of God and His Faithful King. The Outstretched Hand of God and His Faithful King. This idea that God's hand was outstretched in correction, but yet He found a way through a king to correct or to bring redemption. So, before we enter in the text, before we look at this book or these pages a little bit, I want to pray and thank God that we can see things in here. From him. So would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you are a good father. 
that you are God that loves. We sang about it. We want to believe it more and more. We trust that you have our best interest in mind. You created us. You sustain us. And you want to draw us unto you for your glory. Lord, I ask that this morning as we look at this text, we can think about you and, and just think about our own lives and us together as a people and how we need to respond to who you are. I thank you for this word that Isaiah spoke to his people and that has been preserved for us to hear and listen to. And I ask, Spirit, that you continue to enlighten us this morning of what you want us to know so we can respond and live out. It's in your name. You're, you're the king that we're going to talk about today. And we, we look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith. And we honor you today that this book points to you. And we want to look at that today. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to read for us a few verses from chapter 9, which is kind of the high water mark of chapters 7 through 11 in Isaiah. It's a, it's a commonly known passage. It's one that some of the verses will be familiar to you as I read them. It says, starting in verse 2 of chapter 9, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. For the yoke of burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on, as on the day of Midian. For every, every boot of trampling war and battle cement and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David over his, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, and from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9, for some of us, we hear those verses and our mind ultimately goes right to Christmas time. This is a Christmas passage, right? It promises the child that will be born to us, the Prince of Peace, the one to come, the one who will be of the line of David. There's all sorts of promise and excitement and hope moving from darkness to light, people rejoicing the ends of war and the things that will come out where the tools and instruments of war are being used to fuel fire because they're not needed anymore. A child born to us. We maybe get all excited and say, okay, it's almost it's middle May. Maybe let's get to December so we can have Christmas again, right? Okay, hopefully not. Let's enjoy summer first. This passage, like last week when we read, uh, the virgin shall give birth to a child and he shall be called Emmanuel. These passages remind us of, of the Messiah to come. But like this morning, I think what's important and what we need to remind ourselves of is the context that these come in. That the storyline that these verses fall into to remind ourselves what surrounds them. 
so that we can truly grasp the greatness of the child that's born, the Messiah that would eventually come. And with that, we need to look at the next verses, which maybe we don't study at Christmas time, starting in verses not in chapter 9, verse 8, and going through 10, verse 4. There we see, and this is the point that I want us to see in it, the, the, this poem that comes up in chapter 9, right after these verses, ultimately shows us of an arrogant people and an angry God. We have this bright, happy verse, but yet what it leads to next is, is a people who are rebellious and turning from God, and the fact is that God is angry with them. Chapter 9, verse 8 through 10, verse 4 is basically a poem with four verses, four sections, and each of those sections ends in this way. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The New Living Translation translates it this way, But even then, the Lord's anger will not be satisfied. His fist is still poised to strike. As in, it's that idea of he's almost going to them. That seems like a hard, difficult passage, and we will think about that more in just a moment. But what we have here is a people, Israel, and they're not walking with God. Before we talk about God, and before we talk about the poem, we should be reminded of who Israel was. This people that he's talking to. Isaiah is speaking for God to his people, to Israel. And we need to remind ourselves that Israel was this nation going all the way back to Abraham... God had chosen Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you to bless others. You're going to be a blessing to the world, Abraham. And from there, he raises up a people. He walks with them through the patriarchs. He walks with them all the way into Egypt. And there, he makes them this great people. End of Genesis. Beginning of Exodus, they're under oppression. They're under slavery. They're they're burdened down. And God says, I'm going to bring you out. I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to bring you out. And he walks them out of Egypt, takes care of their enemies. He walks them through the wilderness to the promised land. And ultimately, he continues to walk them into the promised land where they beat, uh, they, they are victorious over their enemies. They set up, set up the temple. David, Solomon, God is with them. They rejoice. God is truly one that has shown himself as taking care of them. As being the one that when they are dependent on him, he honors them, glorifies them, or shows them uh, his, his, his goodness and his favor. And he's walking with them in this time. Which leads us to ask the question, what was Israel's point in the world then? What's their purpose? I believe it's to depend on God, to enjoy him, but it's also to be a shining example to the rest of the world. So that the world looks at them and looks then through them at their God and says, Wow, you have a great God who dearly loves you. They are an instrument to direct God, people of the world to God. But when we get to nine, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 8, that's just not what's happening. Verse 9 of chapter 9 says this, People will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, and then he quotes them. He says these people, they're speaking, and in their, in their speaking, their heart is full of pride and arrogance. 
they, they aren't depending on me. We could simply say that what they're doing, as they're supposed to be depending on God, is they're going and they're saying, we really don't need God. We really don't need Him. And in verse 8, we hear that God has given them warnings. The Lord has sent word against Jacob. He had already warned them. I was in the grocery store and I heard a child kind of not obeying his mother. And maybe some of you guys do this, but all of a sudden she started counting. One, two, three. Kind of stopped there. But the child knows where it's going. He's getting a warning of some kind of discipline that may be coming if the child doesn't correct and obey. In the same way, God has given warning. He's being slow to anger, as is in his character. But now they've disregarded, and now the time of punishment for their disobedience has come. For Israel, in this poem that Isaiah is speaking... Let me just go through the four stanzas, the four verses, and what it kind of points out. They're wrong, and what God is is angry about. I would encourage you on each of these to just consider, honestly and humbly, are there anything in these things that this resounds any way of my own heart, my own life, as I look at these falls uh, or, or disobedient ways of God, towards God, of God's people? The first is in verses 8 through 12. 8 through 12, it speaks, they, they're saying in pride and arrogance, in not needing God, they're saying, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. These prideful, arrogant people who are supposed to be depending on God, what they're experiencing is maybe a little bit of external conflict. Things are happening in their life. The boat is being rocked a little bit, and... and The buildings are being racked on. They said, you know what? We'll build bigger ones. We'll build them on our own. We don't need God. We don't need to be dependent on Him. We'll do it on our own. We'll build something better. So in their arrogance, they're depending on their own ways, their own means, their own efforts as being the thing that gets them through in this life. They're depending not on God but self. For us, that may be true. We might say, well, I I accepted God when I was a child, or I prayed to receive Christ, and I'm good. And then from there on, I just kind of do life by my own ways. I do it by my own means, my own efforts. When things are tough, when life gives me lemons, I'll just make lemonade. And we do it on our own. I think we can get in that spot more often than we'd like to admit when things are tough. And in that, God says, my anger is not turned away. My hand is outstretched. Punishment is coming. Stanza 2, there in verses 13 through 17, what is going on is they're depending on their own wisdom, not just their own efforts, but their own wisdom to guide. It says in there that they're not inquiring of their Lord. They're not asking Him to guide Him. They're not asking to lead Him or God to lead them in their life. They're depending on their own wise ways, the ways of the world, to guide and direct, to move forward, to lead God's people. For us this morning, again, I can ask, is that the way that we proceed in life, where we depend on our own mind, 
our own ways, where we, we don't look to God, His Word, His wisdom, and say, guide me, God. And we say, you know what, I can do it on my own. Whatever seems clever, whatever seems uh, beneficial to me, whatever makes sense in my own view, I'll go after that. That stanza four of the poem looks at how this group of people is self-centered. They're focused on self, and, and they're even moving towards fighting within them. This people of God, they're fighting together. Verse 18, it says this, Wickedness in the people burns like a fire. No one spares another. They are still hungry, verse 20. They are not satisfied. They're supposed to be the people of God. This is supposed to be His people, His group, and they're supposed to be a family, and yet they're gnawing at each other and destroying each other, and, and in a process of, of gossip or, or of, of, of anger and fighting against each other, they're, they're raging against each other, and, and here God is upset because they're not taking care of each other. I imagine that there's some of us who fall into this, Possibly that our natural way is to not love, to not think of caring, to think of our own self-interest. And we fall into this through gossip. We fall in this through passive-aggressive behavior. We fall in this through, through not loving our, our brother and our sister. We think about ourselves. We try to lift ourselves up by pushing them down. And God says... This disobedient behavior, I'm angry at it. The fourth and final section of the poem happens in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And there, they've moved so much that he now says, Woe to you who decree iniquities, iniquitous decrees. The leaders and the people there, they, they're going forward in a process that is now inhibiting them from doing and living out the mission of God. Verse 2. These people, their disobedience is turning aside the needs, the needy from justice. They're robbing the poor of their right. They're terrible to the widow and the orphan. And we could summarize that to say that they're just not being, uh, they're not living up to what they've been called to. Again, Israel has been called to be a people, a light that takes what they've learned from God and shine it out into the world and represent that to the world. And yet, they aren't doing that. They're not on mission. They're not following what he's asked them to do. And so the Lord is angry. He's upset. We could even use the word wrath here. He's wrathful towards them. Now, those ideas... Anger, God's anger, God's wrath. Those are things that we can we can be uncomfortable with. And I think that we get uncomfortable with them because our mind and what we meditate on God is that God is just a loving God. And that's true, He's very loving. He is love. Or He's just kind, or He's just my best buddy, or or He would never get upset. But I think we have to admit that here in this text, these are the words that are being used, and it's God who's using them. He's speaking these about himself. He's saying, this is part of who I am right now. This is who I am and how I feel towards your disobedience, towards your rebelliousness against me. 
We should wrestle that, that in our mind. What does it mean when God says, I'm upset. I don't like what you're doing. We can't just brush it under the rug and say, pretend like that's not part of the character. Because what happens at best is we're just ignoring what's in the text. And what's worse is if what we're doing in our minds is we are actually creating a God, a picture of God, that's not part of the Bible. We're creating a false God. One commentator talks about this idea of God's anger and says, we need to remind ourselves that when we want to push this away, we should actually embrace this idea of God's anger from the standpoint of what that means is, is that God actually has emotions towards us. He actually cares. He actually is involved in our life. It's not that he created it and then just kind of stepped away and just hoped for the best. Well, this commentator compares it to Aristotle's idea of the unmovable mover who just who just does and thinks on good things and doesn't have emotion towards creation. And he says, no, we should not do that. We should understand that this, this frustration with disobedience is a good thing for us because it means God cares about us, about our actions. He's involved in thinking and looking at us. And we should embrace it because it should move us to understand that like a parent, like a mother or a father, that anger comes out of his deep love for us. It's in a reaction to his desire to love us and he wanting, his wanting to, to do what we were created to do, to depend on him, to honor him, to glorify him, to make him look great in the world. He wants to love us and knows that that's what's best for us. And when we turn and disobey, it frustrates so where are we in that? Are we, are we walking in the ways of Israel? Are we, are we finding areas in our life where we might be in disobedience? Are we finding ways where we might be arrogant of chasing and holding and clinging to God? I, I think that we need to, and for some of us, you might be thinking in terms of, okay, I'm going to search this, I'm going to find this, I, I'm going to think about this and ask God, and that's a good thing. Other of us here, the other reaction might be like, oh, no, I'm good. And at that point, I would caution you to say that you're living out the passage when you're saying, oh, no, I'm fine. I don't have any problem. There are always things that we should be searching and asking God, what is it? Where are the areas where I'm not following you? Which moves us to the second point. That God uses earthly tools for discipline. God uses earthly tools for discipline. Verses 5 through 19 of chapter 10 what is going on in this passage is that Assyria is coming into battle. They are coming. They are the, the mean bully nation on the block. Uh, I read it in one place that, that they could be described as kind of the, the almost uh, Nazi Germany empire that was just mean, cruel, conquering territory, had no passion for anyone. They were just destructive, and they were just waging war against everyone. And this is a group that's coming in and about to attack Israel. They're about to come in and wipe out this people. But what we see as God is speaking to them, 
as we see and we saw last week, uh, Isaiah is, is pointing to Assyria being on the horizon and coming towards them, and, and they, they are coming towards Israel. We see in chapter 10 that it's actually God that's bringing them in. That God is the one that is bringing Assyria to his people to correct, to discipline. He says, I'm sending you against a godless nation. He says to Assyria, I'm sending you against Israel, who is a godless nation. They aren't following me. He moves on by the end in verse 12. He says, when the Lord has finished all his work in Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Israel and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, God says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found, like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, as one and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. Verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who hews it, hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against who wields it, as the rod should wield him who lifts it, or the staff should lift him who is not wood. The story is that Assyria is coming in. They're coming in to attack, and, and they, Assyria, this army, is absolutely confident. They are, they are arrogant, just like Israel was. They're full of themselves. They think, we're awesome, we're good, we're going to conquer, we're, we're mighty, we're thinking about ourselves. And the reality is, is that they will win. This plan for battle, they're going to win it over Israel. And Israel is actually going to be ruined by this army. But those words that I read, verse 12, when the Lord is finished, verse 13, all these I statements, the Lord saying, I did this, I'm doing this, I'm behind this. In verse 15, he describes Assyria as merely a tool in his hand, something that he is using for his purposes to come and have his plan come forward. God is using Assyria, this mighty nation, and it says, this isn't Assyria's plan to come into battle. This is my plan, God says. This is my doing. They are a tool for my purposes in this world. And so God is using an earthly circumstance. He's using an event, persons, things, to bring correction to his people. It's almost like when I might have misbehaved a long time ago. I'm not making this an argument about the corporal punishment or what you do in parenting. But there was a time and there was a place, and, and often, it may have happened more often than I wish, where mom had to bring out a tool for correction. One time it even broke on me. But that wooden spoon was a tool that says, I love you, but I'm upset, I'm hurt, I'm frustrated. And there is correction that is needed to happen here. And in the same way, God is using Assyria and he's saying, I'm trying to do something to my people to turn their eyes back to me, to draw them back to me because I love them and they're missing it. And I think about us. 
if God uses these tools, and he has used these tools in the past to correct and draw people and draw their eyes back to him, we can ask ourselves, what might be in my life that is hard, that is difficult, those things that, I'm, that are just frustrating me and, and, and are just beating me up and I can't get through the barrier? What are the things in my life that it might, rather than just chalking it up on the problem of, of, of that, that it's just brokenness, what might I say, God might be using that to draw my attention to Him and draw my dependency back to Him and saying, I need a course correction and I need to go back and draw close to God. What might that be in our lives? But the story is not done there. As we start to think about how we are, by nature, against God, as we, uh, by nature, need correction and need to be drawn to God, the story goes on in verse 20 to speak of a remnant. And that leads us to this point where we have to see what God is showing us, that God, God's discipline leads to redemption. That this discipline leads to redemption in people drawing back to him and understanding who he is. Look at verses 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivor of the house of Jacob will no more lean on his, him who struck him, but will lean on the Lord. The Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the Mighty One of God, for though... Through your people, Israel, uh, Israel be as a, the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make full a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. This passage is talking about a remnant will return, and that will actually happen in, in, in physical people returning but it will also happen in the spiritual that through this time and through this way, some people will come back to the Lord. They'll start to turn back to God. While destruction is decreed, it's not a total, absolute uh, wasteland in the sense that everything, no hope, no plan forward. It's not total ruin. It goes on in verse 27 that in the midst of this... 24 through 27, it goes on in the midst of this talking about a remnant who will return. He goes on to say this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of Assyria when they strike you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian on the rock of Orb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat talking about here. He brings up Egypt. He, he brings up a lift from burden, a lift from a yoke of slavery. And what he's going after here is in this, in this discipline, in this correction that I'm bringing, I'm going to bring a new exodus. 
he starts to bring in this conversation about looking back to Egypt and how God brought out his people from there. And he's saying that I'm going to bring you through a greater renewal of the exodus from long ago. This is the beginning of redemption of God's people, turning them towards him. He's going to lead them into redemption through this correction. And that seems all good. But then we get this strange verse. When we start to feel, start feeling the hope of what this text is saying, we hear in verses 33 and 34 this. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the burrow, the burrows, burrows, uh, with terrifying power. The great, the great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thicket of the forest with the axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. While we start feeling this hope and start feeling redemption, what we hear and what we look around is not what we'd expect as far as hope, but instead what we see is a wasteland where he speaks of an axe cutting down all the trees and there's nothing left. That it doesn't seem really positive. It seems rather bleak. It looks like everything is destroyed. That leads us into chapter 1. God's discipline leads to redemption, but that source of redemption is the child king to come. The source of redemption is that perfect child that will come in what we read in earlier, chapter 9, and also now bookending this section in chapter 11. Look with me there, 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from the roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and will, with the breath of his lips he will, shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In total destruction where all the trees, he says, have been cut down, one thing is going to come up out of it. In your rebellion, in your disobedience, I'm going to tear down, but something is going to pop up, a a shoot that's going to come and rise out of that. And it is the king of David, the stump of Jesse, the one who will save. He's talking about the Messiah to come. He's talking about Jesus, who we know we celebrate with chapter 9, a child is born to you, the Prince of Peace. We celebrate that in Christmas time, and we look here, but and this king that's coming, the righteous king that's coming, he's the one that will be where redemption happens. It's in him that we find hope in our discipline. It's in him that that he is going to be led and be righteous and judge and not lead the people astray. He's going to follow God correctly. So, why are those verses that we celebrate at Christmas time so important? Why are they so deep in meaning? It's because, as we see here, 
for Israel, they were disobedient. They were not walking, and they were brought through this correction so that one could come, the Savior could come, and bring them, lead them as a righteous king would follow through. For us this morning, as we're thinking about our own ways in which we have disobeyed, we have not followed, we have not walked with God, and we need correction. What we need to find is that correction comes, but ultimately the hope and where we turn to in those things is by turning to Jesus and what he did and what he does and how he leads and guides. And we remind ourselves of that this morning. And we start to look at him did, not just in his life and birth coming when we were broken, rebellious against God, but all the way through to his death when he led himself to the cross. He died, served us as our king, going and paying for our own sins, our own disobedience. What we see is this king who is to come is the one who would lay down his life for us and leads righteously now as he was raised from the dead. And in that, as we follow him, as we look to him, we hear these verses, verses 6 through 9. In him, rather than disobedience, rather than rebellion, rather than needing correction, as we follow him, what we see is that God promises this, peace. The wolf shall dwell in the little lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, the little children shall, shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the lean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse, this one that will grow up, shall stand as a signal for all the people of him shall the nations inquire, and the resting place shall be glorious. What he's saying is that, Israel, you have disobeyed, you haven't followed me, and so what I'm going to do is create one who will, who will show the way to me, to God, who will represent me to the world. That in the world that we don't have the peace, the the, the place of, of goodness, and we are, are prone to wander our own way, God is saying it's in Christ, in the Messiah, that when we look to Him, we will find what we need. This morning for us, I think about that in our disobedience or our, our ways, our, our ways of, of where we don't trust God, we don't walk with God, we don't do as He says, and, and we need to consider what is it that God is trying to do reminding me and correcting me and, and walking with me in the fact that he might actually be upset with something that I'm doing. This morning, the gospel message, I think, for us is the fact that in the midst of that, this one, this stump, this root of Jesse, when God is angry at us, we must be reminded that Jesus, in his righteousness, the fact that he went to the cross, the fact that he died, the fact that he was raised, he is sitting in heaven now, ruling, reigning, leading like this king is. And he's saying, God, I know you're upset at them. But look at me. 
Look at my righteousness. Look at my goodness. Look at what I did. And I think in that you find redemption in the fact that we are now following in the fact that he's looking at and that wrath, that upsetness of God, that anger has been turned away as Jesus has stepped in to fill our place. That's the importance of why Jesus came. That's the importance of what we look to in these great passages. That like Israel, this was us until Jesus stepped in. And I hope as we're thinking about that even now, not just not just a one-time saving, but daily we need to remind ourselves of our need for the Savior. We need to turn to and say, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you love me. That you want to fill me. Let's go to him now. Father God, this morning we thank you that you are a loving God. so much that you sent your son to die for us but we also know and admit that you have an anger against our disobedience an anger that truly deserves your wrath your punishment but yet an anger that you did something about, something that we could never do, because ultimately we know that, that God, we, our natural bent is to walk away from you. Lord, I would ask that this morning that whatever is on our hearts of where we might not be following you, where we need correction in our life, we need a tool to point us back to you point us back to where redemption is found and found in our King. Lord, do that in us. I ask that you work things in our lives that say turn to me. Father God, for this people, I ask that we continue to search and listen to this word so that we can follow you more and more.